Sometimes we find our frequency by holding on to a moral bottom line in the midst of chaos. Sometimes we find it by breaking the rules and running the red light to get home. Matthew McConaughey, Green Lights. That was Brandy. I'm Kayla. This is Two Bitches Reading Books. I've been holding on to that quote since my first, our first section of reading, just so I could deliver it at the beginning of this episode. It's been weeks. Your delivery was great. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Well, we finally got what we wanted, didn't we? Yeah. We got married. We met his wife. She seems like a real badass. Yeah. Like, I hope Orlando feels that same way about me, the way he feels about his wife. Well, if, if he doesn't, then we could just get rid of him. Yeah, true. That too. so we started this reading on part five turn the page on october 23rd 1999 i was 10 how old were you nine about to turn 10 yes no i was about to turn nine oh man that was eight yeah how weird and he was just out there living on the road with his doggy living his life and he's kind of gotten tired of being on the road and uh, gets an apart- in apartment in Austin. And he loved this apartment because it was a kind of area where your kids could play outside in the street without having to worry about cars driving down. And he had privacy. Yeah. He's talking about how he had, like, everything he needed. A little garden. He had a one-hitter to hit before he did. And this part just made me laugh so hard because... My parents smoked pot when I was a kid, and they had a little one-hitter, and it was shaped like a cigarette, so it was, like, discreet, so they could use it in public or whatever. I mean, not like smoking pot is discreet, but that's how I'm picturing his little one-hitter. I don't even know what a one-hitter is. It's just a pipe that literally only holds enough weed for you to hit it one time. Okay. The one I'm picturing in my head was, like, a cigarette, but, like, not the full cigarette. Like, it'd been smoking down halfway, so you put the tiniest little bud in there. You can't break it up too much because when you hold it up, it's going to fall right out. So you put a little bud in there, and then you can light it, and there you go. We got a little one-hitter. Anyway, that's what I'm picturing, and this is about the same time in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Okay, good to know. His dad would have hated to find out what a pothead he was, wouldn't he have? Yeah. He, yeah. I don't think it would matter how successful he was. Right. Page 178, he's got a bumper sticker that says, if you're high enough, the sun's always shining. I thought of you when I read that. (laughs) That made me laugh. (laughs) Um, In this one, he's celebrating the Longhorns defeating the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Because apparently the Cornhuskers were undefeated that season. Not anymore, bitches. (laughs) (laughs) And so he partied. He partied Saturday into Sunday throughout Sunday night without sleeping and it was 2.30 Monday morning. He was playing the bongos naked, and cops busted down his door and arrested him for um, just partying Possession too hard. of marijuana, disturbing the peace, and resisting arrest is what they finally boiled it down to. And I fucking loved this story because not only was he like, I was resisting arrest because you broke into my fucking house, <laughs> but also... I'm not putting pants on, so you know I'm innocent. Yeah, his his nudity was proof of his innocence. He went all the way to the jail before he let anybody put clothes on him. But, like, on 170, 179, I was just laughing because of his, his escape plan. <laughs> he was going to do, like, some, some fucking ninja shit and, like, flip in the air and slide his handcuffs over his feet. <laughs> get out of this situation i'm just like yeah you have been partying for a couple days haven't you (laughs) (laughs) i also like that he called uh one of the cops a corn husker (laughs) that he looked like a corn husker (laughs) this story was so fucking funny i have tears in my eyes right now that's (laughs) anyway he did not escape they took him to jail and one of the inmates was like helping with booking you know and the the dude is like, you're going to want pants in here, buddy. Just trust me. And so he finally takes the pants. He gets out pretty quickly. He's only there for like eight hours, they from drop, what I can tell. Yeah, they drop the charges, the possession of marijuana, and the resisting arrest. And then they end up dropping the disturbing the peace. So like, what, just a fine, a violation and a fine. And mm-hmm. so the lawyer ended up paying that. 
Yep. He had a pretty good lawyer. Um, even before he got the lawyer involved, it seemed like the judge, like, apologized because, like, the cops should have at least fucking knocked before they went into his house. You know, they got the call and they found out who it was and they were like, we're going to make an example of this motherfucker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, anyways, this is a hilarious, funny story. And he, like, he, he won in the end. Like, the cops were embarrassed. Everybody apologized to him. I think they got fired. Yeah. He says they got fired or something, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, the Cornhusker was dismissed from the force. Yeah, fuck him. He's gone. So he kind of won this whole thing, but he ends up feeling guilty because he got caught, and that's not the McConaughey way. That's not the outlaw way. My little liberal heart reading this, I was like, oh, man, he's so lucky because, like, there's people out there that do that, and they don't walk away. And he even makes a mention of that, that he knows that there are people that are not as lucky as him. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking, too. So he actually, of course, turned this into a positive thing. Well, I don't even know if he did it or if people just did it, because he says two days later, bongo naked t-shirts were all over Austin. He ends up framing his ticket. And this, of course, he loves this story. You can tell I love this story. This is a great story. Yes. But this whole thing got his address leaked and now he has to move because he got now doxed. he got doxed he has to leave there's like an extra strike that's looming he says and he's going bald all this ends up happening at the same time and that's pretty fucking hilarious i didn't even realize he was balding when he shot the wedding planner i didn't either i i literally never would have known if i hadn't read this so i guess what you have to do to get unbald is shave your head, take a really masculine, masculine role, become um, a caveman, basically, and then your hair will grow back. I don't know. That's all. That's all made up. He also used Rogaine, so Rogaine, and Rogaine. works. <laughs> and chemicals and medicine. Science, bitch. <laughs> he was, like, really... He was quite the ladies' man when he was on set at the wedding planner, it sounds like. He was, he was partaking. He had, like, a fancy hotel stay that he had booked for the whole like duration of the filming and he also had a key to the kitchen i mean it pays to be famous and hot you can go into the hotel kitchen at 3 a.m and cook yourself up a filet mignon lucky him he's living it feels like and jennifer lopez was his leading lady yeah he's making out with jennifer lopez for money and making out with everybody else for fun that's how I'm describing his wedding planner face. Yes. And that's why he was balding. Let's be frank. I believe it. I believe it too. So he ends up getting offered a role of like this dragon slayer dude. Have you seen this movie? I have not. Have you? No, I haven't even heard of it. I haven't heard of it either. Man, near the end of the book, he was like just rat- rattling off all those all these movies he's done. I haven't heard of a single one of them except The Gentleman. No, I think I might have heard of a couple. When we go over it again, I'll let you know. Okay. So he really wanted this part of this Van Zandt Dragon Slayer dude because he's hyper-masculine. And Matthew, at this point, he's done a rom-com and he feels like he needs to like get his manhood back. I'm paraphrasing here. He says it much more eloquently, but that's what's going on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so- he ends up shaving his head because he's balding. He knows that he might get in trouble for doing this because he just landed this part and he really wants it. But he has a feeling that he has to shave his head down to the nubbins in order to get the growth to come back. And, and he so feels he, like it helps boost the character. Yeah, in his, in his head, head, Van Zandt is bald and scary. Yeah. So he does it without talking to the people who cast him, and it actually gets like, <laughs> I don't know, he almost a news loses, article. Yes, and he almost loses the role. Yeah, so somebody, like, writes an article about it, and then he just gets a phone call from the guy and said, a guy, like, whispering, saying, you did not shave your head, and he's like, yeah, I did. And the person is like, no, you didn't. I refuse to believe this, Matthew. You just wore a bald cap as a prank. (laughs) And then he gets a note saying, in our talk this morning, Mr. McConaughey, you refuse to admit that you, in fact, had not shaved your head. If you are in denial of this fact, please come clean so we can proceed on the journey of making this film together. (laughs) And then it says, if, in fact, it is true that you shaved your head, This would be a tragedy and a major misstep and an act 
that may breed you very bad karma. <laughs> Bold underlined. This is a business <laughs> memo. Like this is business correspondence. Oh my fucking god, this is fantastic. An exec wrote this to him and had it sent. <laughs> oh god, I can't. Anyway, he ends up changing their minds and getting them to believe that he's going to be the best for the role and they do the movie and it's fine. And the way he does that is by showing up to this party in like this custom made like Gucci suit. Uh, he was all tan, looking hot. And everybody there loved him. So then the exec ended up loving him and acted like all that other stuff didn't even happen. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So he calls that a green light. Fantastic. He has to get ready to become a badass dragon slayer. <laughs> oh my gosh. His, this is his plan to become a dragon slayer. He's going to move to Texas in mid-July when 100 degree, 108 degree weather. Every morning he's going to take a double shot of tequila before sunrise before he gets out of bed. Then he's going to run five miles across the desert daily barefoot, two and a half miles <laughs> out, two and a half miles back. Then to keep his heart rate below, he wants to keep his heart rate below 60 while standing on the edge of his brother's barn's rooftop overlooking a 40-foot drop on the concrete below. He's afraid of heights. And finally, <laughs> he wants to run into the pasture every night at midnight and tackle sleeping cows. In case you want to know, it did not go as planned. <laughs> so he gave up the double shot of tequila basically on the sixth day. <laughs> and then he, he got headbutted by a large bull on the ninth day. So no more tackling cows. It sounds like he gave up running on the 11th day because he literally couldn't run because of the blisters on his feet. And he never made it to the edge of the rooftop, but he tried to walk up to it for two months. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does feel like he learned some stuff from this, but I just feel bad for the cows. They were just out there living their lives. And there's Matthew McConaughey out here dragon slaying. <laughs> and they're probably like, boo. Right, exactly. Oh, man, it's so funny. So he ends up having another wet dream on the next page. It's like the same wet dream, but, you know, again. And he decides to go live out the second half. I love these stories, too. So freaking funny. He ends up going out there. He meets a mus musician that he's been a fan of for a while. And that guy ends up, like, pointing him in a direction that, I don't know, he might be interested in, I guess. Yeah, this time he goes to Africa instead of the Amazon. Yep. And... <laughs> the musician gosh where is his name Ali Farka Torre yes okay yes I see it now at the beginning of 195 so he ends up telling Matthew this quote that's amazing on 196 because there I would be dried shit neither me nor my scent would stick with you here I am wet shit both me and my scent stick with you he's talking about why he doesn't like move somewhere where he might like make more money or something like that and it's because he needs to be wet shit so people remember him. And Matthew, like, takes this wet shit concept and runs with it. He loves it. It's probably because the word shit is in it. Let's be honest. He's a man. Yeah, for sure. On 197, there's a picture of him. And it looks like this camel is hauling ass. I was thinking of that scene in The Mummy, Mummy where she's like, teet, 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 teet. <laughs> and her camel is, like, going the fastest and she wins. Those men hated her. <laughs> yes, they did. Oh, man. There's another good picture on 198. Educate before you indict. That's a good one. And yes. Oh, and that's because he was with two people in Egypt, and they were talking about, I think it's Egypt. They're talking about how one woman is a prostitute, basically, an escort, and how these men are arguing back and forth about <coughs> um, her business. And Matthew McConaughey agreed with one of the men and was like, it's not what she should be doing. She's young and has her health. She should be putting out more effort to have a respectable job rather than choosing prostitution at her young age. And then the guy that he was agreeing with snapped at him and was like, it's not about right or wrong. And it's about, do you understand? So basically, do you understand her situation or are you, are you trying to understand that? And 
when Matthew McConaughey, when Matthew apologized, the guy said, you just better be different and not sorry. Yeah. I thought this story was really good and it was definitely a different perspective and kind of made me think of subtle art of not giving a fuck when um, Mark was like, no one's opinions are right. Like everyone has a wrong opinion. And Mm -hmm. so when they were talking about this, that kind of made me think of that book. Yeah. This was a really good learning experience for all of us. Thank you, Matthew, for sharing it. Yeah. The last paragraph of 198, he says a double whammy of African proverbs. They're not trying to win arguments of right or wrong. They're trying to understand each other. That's different. And then he's like, hey, America, we could learn from this. <laughs> and then he goes on and ends up doing some pit fighting. <laughs> <laughs> on this 198, I realized that the picture on, like, the back inside cover of him, where he's got, like, the necklace and abs and a mustache, this has got to be this trip, right? Yeah. Because his head is shaved, and he looks real sturdy. Yes. And he's got (laughs) beads in his beard. Yes. So he's out in, like, a village, and they're saying there's a strong white man named Aota walking these parts. Eventually, he ends up getting talked into joining a fighting pit. And... (laughs) Michelle, the the real champion of the village, who we find out later isn't just the champion of the village, but he's champion of this village and, like, all the villages within three villages of him. He's a badass fighter. and He's wet shit. (laughs) He is definitely wet shit there. He doesn't need to come in here and try to, like, make a name for himself. His pants are a burlap sack. Like, he's here to fight. He's not here to do anything else. And... (laughs) Matthew ends up fighting him even though it sounds fucking terrifying very terrifying he like holds his own it doesn't seem like anybody wins or loses no the picture on 202 upset me like why did he have to do that crocodile like that that's what I was wondering too I did like in 200 the little bumper sticker some people look for an excuse to do others look for an excuse not to and it just makes me think of something my dad would always tell me He said, there's going to be 100 reasons as to why you shouldn't do something. You need to find that one reason to do it. And so that just kind of brought back some sentimental shit. You should tell your dad to read this. He'd probably like it. Yeah. So the crowd goes wild just because basically he holds his own. Like everybody thought he was going to get his ass whooped, but he didn't. And they like respect him for it. I think they respect him just for getting in the ring. I think so, too. Skinny white boy? Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this trip just ends up being one that he learns a lot on, and he completed the other half of his wet dream. He's real big on actually, like, paying attention to his dreams and, like, following them and thinking about what they mean. And it makes me laugh because I don't have any dreams like this. My dreams are fucking scary, or I don't have dreams at all. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway. He does... um, tell a nice story on page 204 he's telling all these great stories about how awesome his life is going so far but he humbles himself on 204 and tells a story about how he was just dozing off in his it's not a tent but maybe he has a sleeping bag or something and he decides to hawk a loogie spits it it flings right back onto his face because he forgot that he had a mosquito net there so that's funny that was disgusting <laughs> ah. and then on 205 he's got another uh poem I don't know if this is a poem. It's a definition. And then him going off on the word unbelievable. He's saying, believe the unbelievable because it's not only possible, it's real. I read this and the whole time I was thinking about that unbelievable song by Diamond Rio. So that was cool. Oh, good. This book is bringing back a lot of 90s country for me. There you go. Page 206 and 207 are crazy hippie ramblings. Um, if I had to concisely put that into one phrase. Something I didn't read because I can't read this, so. Cool picture of him on a cliff, though. His beard was so long. He definitely had, like, three braids in it. Yeah. And then um, after his little fight with Michelle, Michelle walks him back to the village, holds his hand and everything. It's great. They're actually still friends. And he just maintains a lot of his friendships. He really values human connection. Yes. 
He says in 2015, Issa, who I think was his, um, like, tour guide while he was there. Translator. Uh, translator, yeah. yeah. Came to America, and then they went to Greece together a few, few years later. So he's even still friends with that guy. But, of course, the trip changed him. He gets back home, and his brother, Pat, invites him to Palm Springs for some golfy golf. This is a funny story. <laughs> yeah, they're going to a nice, like, golf resort. And golf people are, like, tootie and rich. And Pat has a big old Labrador. And they didn't realize that the hotel had a no-pet policy. So they're, like, getting out of their truck or whatever. And the hotel staff comes out. And they're, like, telling them, no dogs, sir. Sorry. And Matthew's like, uh, well, that's my brother's seeing eye dog. And Pat heard it and gets out and starts acting like he's blind. <laughs> and Neiman does not give a fuck about her part. She's just doing whatever she wants, sniffing all the bushes, whatever. They actually managed to get in though and I, I know the hotel staff was like I know you guys are fucking with us but I don't get paid enough yeah <laughs> it was a funny story uh, and the next day they go to tea time and Pat is driving and <laughs> the manager is thinking like oh I got this guy I got this guy and then he was like oh I thought you were blind but you're driving and then Pat said I'm only blind at night <laughs> a night blindness bitch <laughs> The fucking manager. I thought you said he was your seeing eye dog. <laughs> anyway, they had a great time. They golfed. They the dog got to stay and fuck what that manager says. <laughs> that that was a great story. He's got some great stories. Mm -hmm. Then Matthew goes on to make some movies, doesn't he? Yes, and live on the beach. I love How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days. That was it, a good one. Failure to launch is a good one. I haven't seen the other ones, so. We Are Marshall's pretty good. Are they? Or is it? Are yeah. they? <laughs> I feel like Sahara, I've seen previews for, but never saw it. But these are our rom-coms. He's entering his rom-com phase, which makes sense because his hair's growing back. Yeah. And he's shirtless on the beach all the time. Oh, yeah. He's the shirtless rom-com beach guy right now. And it's, it's the life for him right now. On 215, he talks about uh, the workout scale, and it's really funny. Like, 215 and 216, but 215 is all, like, workout alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> his favorite of which is uh, the original exercise, sex. Actually, I don't think he says that's his favorite, but that just makes me laugh. <laughs> One less beer is an alternative to exercise. Yep. So he goes on to talk about how he likes rom-coms. They make his life easy. They make him money. But he is missing being challenged. And that's basically going to be the theme for the rest of the book. There's a bumper sticker here, perfectly timed, of course, that says, I am good at what I love. I don't love all that I'm good at. He thought about changing his career after a while because he was just getting bored of acting. Mm -hmm. And then we have another little poem called The Grifter. He, it's basically him just saying that you can mentally, like, start your, start a new page whenever you want. You can mentally start your story over whenever you decide to do it, because this is your story and you're writing it, and I love that. Yeah, that was a good one. But he basically ends part five, he buys a house and moves out of his Sunset Boulevard apartment, basically. He's growing up. How sweet. And then we're in part six, and we started with another wet dream. A new one, though. And a different it's, kind. He's 88. It's his birthday. He's at this nice house chilling and all these cars start pulling up. It's all of his women with all of their kids. He's got 22 women with 88 children there to celebrate his uh, 88th birthday. <laughs> his takeaway from this dream is that it's going to be okay if he can't find the woman because he's been trying to find the woman. Like that's been something that's on his plate up until this point. And if he ends up just making a bunch of women happy and having a bunch of kids, that's fine. And I'm reading this like, uh, okay, Nick Cannon. Oh my God. That's what I thought too. <laughs> he met his now wife in 2006 at the Hyde club on sunset Boulevard. He said that she walked in and it looked like the mermaid that he saw in the Amazon in his first wet dream in the early 90s. And the first thing he fucking did was raise his arm to flag her down like some little chode on the side of the road or something. <laughs> Luckily, he caught himself and walked over there and tried to actually talk to her. 
<laughs> oh man it's cute though they're like talking they're chatting they end up going out front at closing time or whatever and her car's been towed so he like talks her into coming back to his place although she'd already told him no but now her car's been towed and he's like well come back to my place and i'll have the car take you home after we have a drink and of course he has the car sent away to connor into staying over but it turns out fine and every time he goes down into her room to bother her in the night like a little skeeve she says <laughs> no so good i'm glad but the next morning like he wakes up and his friends are chatting with her and it's like they've been old friends this entire time. And he's like, okay, well, I guess this is it. He says, 15 years later, she's the only woman I've ever wanted to take on a date, sleep with, or wake up next to. Cute. Like you said, she's his mermaid. She ends up going to Australia with him to uh, film Fool's Gold. They'd only been together for about a year and he talks about the conversation and she was like, are you sure? And he's like, definitely. I don't want to do anything without you. Of course she had to like keep her own independence. He ends up renting a place. So she has her own bedroom, bathroom, and like key to the place. But he says she barely uses that. And they go on a cute little vacation that I'm jealous of while they're on vacation. Like this isn't vacation. They're working, but they're working in Australia, which is like a vacation. So they're on vacation on their vacation. Anyway, I'm jealous. There's a cute picture of them on 232. So cute. I, I think she's way too hot for him. I think but. so, too. I looked her up. I was stalking. She looks like she could take him in a fight, too. Yeah. It looks like she wears the pants in the family. I think that she does, and the way that he quotes her in this book <laughs> just makes me feel like definitely, definitely she does, and I love it. I love it. Although, if he was just, like, Matthew McConaughey, some Joe Blow off the street, not Matthew McConaughey, like, movie star... I don't know. He definitely would have been out kicking his punk coverage with this one. Yeah. They move into the RV and they decide to start trying for kids. The only way that they could do that, though, is if Matthew promised to take them all filming when he went to work. Yep. She was not going to have his babies unless he was going to make sure they were a family all the time. And you might be thinking, like, they moved into the RV. Didn't he just buy a house? But they specifically didn't want to live in the house together because they wanted a space that was theirs and not a space that, that was his, you know, so... This is what she wanted to. I don't think he's ever done anything she didn't want to do since the beginning, since he met her that day. <laughs> yeah. So he's like stoked to try to become a dad. We'll find out later that this was like one of the number one things his young self had on his like life to-do list. So they make a baby, don't they? they I don't do. know how many months later it took, but they end up conceiving and they're so excited. They call his mom and his mom of course, reacts like, this is not how I raised you, Matthew. You're supposed to get married and then have a baby. You're doing it all out of orders. I am not happy for you and hangs up. But thank fucking God, immediately calls back and says, I'm sorry, that was selfish. Can we just white out that whole conversation? I'm happy for you guys. And then she hangs up again. And I'm like, thank God she's growing as a woman. It took her 70 years, but she's coming around. Yes. And then the next two pages are impressions in the mirror. And I loved these two pages. I read impressions and I was like, ugh, I kind of hated that. And then I read the mirror, which is basically just like a mirror version of impressions. But like impression, it's is all about how some people are good for us only like from afar and in very small doses. But some people are good for us up close, microscopic. We can't live without them. So very cute. Yeah, I like that too. When Camilla is six months pregnant, we find out that Matthew shuts down his production company and his music label because he's decided he needs to have more time to focus on what he wants to be important in his life. He wants to be a dad, an actor, and focus on his foundation, which I think just means putting money away. And getting A's in the areas that matter instead of C's. Yes, he says he's been producing C's in all of the five things he's been working on in his life. But this will give him time to, you know, focus. He ends this by saying, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> it, I mean, I feel like it's so easy to be a guy who believes in, like, moments when such little moments have changed your life in such gigantic ways. Yes. Such, and it's not just that, because everybody's life has moments that are tiny that change their, like, whole shit in like drastic ways you know but his are measurable because they're like he can see them he can go back to them we've all seen them you know it's uh -huh. I feel like it's a little bit different when those moments are right in front of your eyes and you can count them off so maybe we should write our own book to find out which moments are ours i don't know 
I don't, I don't think I have the patience for that. And I haven't been journaling for any years. No, me either. So on page 239, his first kid is born. Three days of labor in an emergency C-section. Kayla, I feel like you can kind of relate. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I feel like three days at the hospital. I like literally suicidal thoughts just went in my head when I was just pondering that just now. Like, Well, and then you have to stay three extra days after the C-section. Because you just had fucking surgery. Yeah. So they were in there for six days. That's insane. And then you go home and you're like recovering from surgery and taking care of a being that literally can't do anything for itself. Yeah. I'm overwhelmed. But this is not a story about being overwhelmed. Matthew was talking about naming his son because they didn't know the gender before he was born. And I mean, I guess you don't really know the gender until they tell you when they're older, but... You know, the sex is what I should say, probably. Anyway, they don't have a name because they didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl. They have a few picked out, but the baby is born at 622, and Matthew reflects on one of his favorite Bible verses. Just happens to be Matthew 622. In thine eye be single, thy whole body will be full of light. And he loves that. He's a real biblical guy. He actually has that engraved engraved on, like, a bedroom. Yeah. So they don't want to name, or like Matthew doesn't want to name his kid. He doesn't want a junior, but they decide to name him Levi because it's from the book of Leviticus. That's a sweet name. Right after the baby's born, he ends up hanging out around a nursing home a lot back in Austin because there's a family emergency. He doesn't ever tell us what really happened, but it seems like his mom probably got sick considering they're spending a bunch of time in a nursing home and that's where his mom lives. Yes. And then they decide to move back. Yeah, he is loving it there. He's just, he loves the vibes in Austin. He loves the people in Texas. He loves the way they interact with each other. And he misses it. And Camilla can tell he misses it. And she asks him and he's like, yeah. And she's like, let's do it. She's in. So green light. And they find the perfect fucking house, of course, with some land, room for dogs and kids and everything. must be nice to be rich. It must be nice to be rich, right? This is... This is one of the times, but definitely not the last time I think that in this book. Yeah. (laughs) He's talking on 243 and 244 about the three things that make you ask yourself what matters and the three things that make you realize it all does. And it's like, you know, the family's death, newborns, and trying to keep your life. I think what he means by that is sickness. Yeah. So... Those moments, I guess, we can reflect upon because I guess Matthew's telling us that they change our lives a lot. Just kidding. We probably knew that. We end part six with finding out Camila's pregnant and the last bumper sticker says, it's not a risk unless you can lose the fight. Yes, and that's perfect for us going into this because this next part is all about him being ready to be done with rom-coms and he'd been feeling that that itch for a while too it's not just camilla's second pregnancy that's bringing it on he had it before but camilla's second pregnancy really brought it into focus because he's like my life is a (laughs) rom-com i don't want to just go to work and live my life and then come home and live my life my life is perfect already i want some adversity (laughs) is what i feel like what he was saying right yeah (laughs) so uh we start to the next part part seven in fall of 2008, I forgot to read the name of this. Be Brave, Take the Hill. They're all so inspiring. I feel like I got to read them. Yes. Like we said, he's ready to quit rom-coms. They make a lot of money, he talks about, but they're not challenging him, and they're not the stories that he wants to tell anymore. So he's really nervous, but he, it seems like he's got the support of, like, is this his agent? Yeah, because he asked and- his agent how long he can go without working, and his agent was like, oh, you have a while. And then he's like, well, are, are all the execs going to be okay? And he's like, I don't work for them. I work for you. Yep. And then and you have another little poem, Selfish. I think that he's kind of saying you should be selfish. Yeah. His wife is supporting him too. Like, we're going to commit to this change. No half-ass in it. She talks to him like his dad talked to him. And that's why he loves her so much. Yes. <laughs> so, basically, the rest of this book, he's just going to be – or like a good rest of this book, he's just going to be rejecting rom-com offers and hoping, hoping that somebody sends him an offer for something that's legit. But in the meantime, he talks about a Christmas reunion. They do this every year at Christmas on his brother's ranch with the whole family out in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, I didn't really take too many notes on this one. He's telling a story about Pat being mad about basically a mistake he himself made. I like the stories with Pat. They're funny. He had a virtual receptionist service back in the 90s, and he called to see if he had any messages of people that needed help. And his thing went out of service and he was like, what are you talking about? And then he was talking about suing them. And then I laughed because I was like, oh, that's just like his dad. Mm-hmm. At the end of page 255, he welcomes his daughter into the world. And he's talking about how he'd been grown to know that all relationships have like the end of their honeymoon phase. But having a daughter, the honeymoon phase never ends. Sweet. Yeah. Then he has another um, poem about defining success for yourself that I didn't take any notes on personally. No, just that he goes to a voodoo shop in New Orleans and that he loves New Orleans. He loves New Orleans, doesn't he? A year's gone by since he stopped accepting rom-com offers. And he talks about one where they offered him $5 million, and then he said no. And they kept just raising the offer up to $14.5 million, And he still ended up saying no. He even makes a note, though, that the script sounded better when it was worth $14.5 million. And like, yeah, fucking what, what in it? But he had to stick to his guns no matter the price. He didn't want to be the rom-com guy. And, I mean, I feel like that's what you got to do. He gets bad anxiety from this, though, because he's been out of work. But it works out for him, doesn't it? He says he basically, like, unbranded himself to the point where people were just sending him offers for all kinds of stuff. He got a call for Bernie. He got a call for the paper. Boy, he got a call for Mud, Magic Mike, and these were all new characters that he was really excited to get into. So, my note on 260 was so once you're rich enough, you can too say fuck the bucks and find your passion. Yeah, yep. <laughs> so, anyway, he rebranded and it worked out for him. He really came out with some great movies. His wife is fully on board with him. He's talking about how he got all these offers, but like the schedules are super tight and he doesn't know if he like really has the time. And his wife is like, grab your balls and do it, big boy. And I really hope she talks shit to him like that. I do too. (laughs) It would make everything better. Yeah. So all of this is going on. He calls it the reconnaissance. He's like getting all these new offers, but also he's thinking about the script for the Dallas Buyers Club. That he got in 2007. We're now in 2010. Yeah. And it's because, like, he got the script, but nobody was actually making the movie yet. It's just been on his mind, and he's hoping that if he talks to enough people about it, somebody will finally make it. And the movie-making business sounds so crazy. Yes. (laughs) So crazy. It's all about knowing people. Thankfully, in 2010, though, he finds a director who wants to make this movie. And they start planning to make it. They don't have funding for it. Nobody has said they're going to make this movie yet, though. They know how much they need for it. They haven't had anybody say they're going to give them the money for it, but Matthew is starting to lose weight. He's going to get down to 130 pounds. Yeah. From 180. In this time when he's, like, planning for a movie that we don't know if he's even going to be able to make yet, he gets a call about The Wolf of Wall Street, and I'm so glad he put this in. I know. Me too. And I had been wondering since we learned how much of his work in, like, his earlier career was improv, if that scene was improv. And he says, like, a lot of it was. He went off script, and they ended up keeping it in the movie. And a fucking horse. It was great. But that guy was one of the, like, one-line guys that, like, just he could see to their soul from one line. And the line was, he thought the key to successful stockbrokering was cocaine and hookers (laughs) Matthew loved that he said delusional or not anyone who believes that could have an encyclopedia written about him (laughs) yeah so he says Scorsese let me play and DiCaprio teed me up like these guys are just in there having a shit fest having a good time drinking at lunch and it's actually just movie gold I love it (laughs) he ends up continuing to lose the weight they still don't know if anybody is going to pick it up but he's also working on writing the script it sounds like and he's like going deep into this guy's character like he's reading or listening to tapes that the guy recorded while he was alive and he even goes and sees the guy's family who it seems like he's pretty friendly with and they give him his journals so he's even like reading his journals And he gets to know him, like, super freaking well. Eventually, thank fucking God, they get money to make the movie. It's not as much as they need, but it's something. 
And they decided to go forward, even though they didn't get all the money they need. We already know how Dallas Fires Club went. Like, first of all, one of the most epic memes, possibly the year that it came out. Am I kidding? Am I wrong here? I don't even know what meme it is. So let me Google it. I think it's Dallas Fires Club, him behind the wheel of the car, like screaming. Oh, yeah. Yep. What a freaking story. He talks a lot about one specific like sex scene that they made and they wanted to make sure that it was like real and like you know like uh, uh, real but not ugly yeah and also like make it work because we know that these characters both have like advanced stage sexually transmitted diseases and they make it work and like he's telling us all this and you can just tell how fucking proud he is of this movie like he put a lot into this one he won some shit for it too didn't he yeah he won an award an academy award that's how we end part seven and we're in part eight live your legacy now (laughs) i liked the story (laughs) that starts off with his young son Asking why his mom is not a McConaughey like them. The three-year-old always coming in with the hard-hitting questions. Do you have feelings, mom and dad? I don't give a fuck. (laughs) So his kid basically makes him realize that he's afraid of marriage. He's afraid that he won't still be an individual if he gets married. But he ends up asking Camilla to marry him. And they get engaged. And about, like, six months later, Camilla comes in, gives him an invitation to his wedding, saying, we're getting married in a month. I've got a bun in the oven, and I'm not going to be a pregnant bride. So get your shit together, boy. And they do it. They get married. Brother Christian from the monastery presides over their wedding, actually. So that's fun. See? Keeping those relationships with people. Keeping the connections. And he said that he didn't marry the woman of his dreams. He married the best one on earth for him. And she's a mermaid. 276, my mother could finally put away the whiteout. And Levi had one less question. I'm sure he has the same amount of questions. He could find some more. Probably. (laughs) Probably. And then also on 276, we find out how his third kid got their name, Livingston. He'd met two Livingstons in his life. And they were awesome, outstanding role model type men and he decided that he should also have a third so livingston alves mcconaughey in 2012 so he's just fulfilled he's happy he's married he's a father he's unimpressed with his success and involved in it wanting what i needed and needing what i wanted and now we learn how he got into true detective man i am so glad that he got Rustin. He was actually, they wanted him for the part of Marty Hart, which is Woody Harrelson's character in it. And Woody Harrelson probably would have been a fine Rustin, but it's so good the way that it actually is. It's so good. You need to watch it. I hope this made you want to watch it more. It did. He talks about how True Detective airing around the time, like the voting and like the award season was happening was just like, press for him and he ended up winning a shit ton of awards for Dallas Buyers Club because like he was nominated for these awards while the show was out Mm -hmm. so he won a bunch of awards for best actor the Critics Choice Golden Globes Independent Spirit Screen Actors Guild and then he even won an Oscar for this movie like this movie they didn't even know if it was going to get made and they were working on for years and years Uh, that makes me happy under budget too under budget too good for them i love this little sticky note on 281 says there's a difference between art and self-expression all art is self-expression all self-expression is not art (laughs) and then we end 281 with him talking about a bunch of movies he's made interstellar the sea of trees free state of jones gold white boy rick serenity the Beach Bum, The Gentleman, Kubo, and The Two Strings, Sing and Sing Too. I've only seen The Gentleman out of all of these. <sighs> it's so good, though. Like, ugh, also, best good. fucking soundtrack in a movie. I have four songs from the soundtrack of The Gentleman on my like list on Spotify, and I have 160 songs on my like list on Spotify. So Dang. I feel like that says a lot about the soundtrack to The Gentleman. Yeah. I have a... a English rap song on there, okay? A rap song with an English accent. (laughs) That's who I am as a person now. I was going to say, you don't even listen to music anymore. I don't. But sometimes I will put on boxes of Bush and jam out to that. Like, There you go. (laughs) But White Boy Rick, have you seen that? No. 
it's based on a true story and there's a podcast about it and that podcast is so fucking interesting it's about a kid who basically like the cops brought in under their wing as like an informant and he just got fucked over damn as one would expect but it's a really interesting story he he like he gets shot out by people because he's an informant for the police because they are not doing a good job of protecting their informants and it's it's you should definitely check it out if you want to be angry one day oh i will um he said that all of these movies that he was starring in were not turning into box office successes and so he was kind of getting down on himself yeah And I couldn't help but think, because he's saying that, you know, they're not box office successes, but he is telling the stories that he wants to tell, and he feels like a better artist now. And it reminded me of the story about back in his acting class when they had to go to the movies, and he would go to the box office movies, and everybody in his class would talk shit to him. And I wonder if that's why. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. He didn't mention it. That's just something that it reminded me of. Maybe that's what those kids meant when they were talking crap about him going to see box office ones because they knew that the ones they worked hardest on would never make it to the box office. But I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. But maybe. I mean, he said that his life was satisfied. His career was full. He laughed louder, cried harder, loved bigger. And he felt more in the characters he was playing in movies than the man he was living in life. And I feel like what he's learning from this, the fact that he's enjoying his life right now more than he has ever, even though outside, like, the measurable metrics for success, like, box office stats aren't, like, super high. Like, maybe we need to reevaluate what we call success. Yeah. So he has decided what makes him successful, and that's making the movies he wants, taking care of his family, and whatever foundation means. Yes, and now we're back to his roller coaster ride of he's more fulfilled in his work than he is life, so now he needs to make life his favorite movie. It seems like being all of these characters and like doing all of these movies that, where he did like deep dives and stuff, it really inspired him to write this book. Yes. So he ends up spending like three months alone in all these places, like a couple weeks at a time, in all these places that were really important to him when he was younger. And he's just reading his journals and getting to know the guy that he is. He says, I laughed, I cried, I wrestled, I wowed. I also had the best time with the best company I've ever had in my life. And then he just basically goes in to sum up what his intentions were with this book and what he's hoping we get out of it, seems like. I didn't take very many notes. This is like, he doesn't have very many pauses and breaks like he doesn't does in the rest of the book. This is a very long like essay here. Yeah, I did like on 286. So I have a couple notes in here on 286 where he says his first 20 years where where he learned the values of values through discipline and deep affection, learning respect, accountability, creativity, courage, perseverance, fairness, service. And then his 20s and 30s is where he eliminated conditions and truths that went against his grain. The value in this conservative era is what he called it, safeguarded him. And he just talks about his the different decades. So his 40s started learning truths. Um, I liked his 40s a lot. He said, past red and yellow lights turned green in his 40s. Yes. We talked about this yesterday about how I feel like 287 kind of made the book. Because as we, we were reading it, we talked about it. But it was really hard for me to be like oh, a white man is telling me if I'm basically right place, right time, always positive, I'm going to be successful in my own right. Uh, And I just felt like maybe Matthew was kind of missing it a little. But then he was talking about, it's closer to 287, the bottom of 287, the last two paragraphs. When the COVID pandemic hit, he said it disrupted everybody's life. It became inevitable. We had to stay home, social distance, we lost jobs, loved ones, and that we never truly knew when it would end and that we were scared. But later on in life, we're going to see the green lights that we learned from COVID. And Mm -hmm. then he talks about George Floyd and how his murder was terrible and that we learned that all lives could not matter until Black lives mattered more. He's talking about how these were two red lights that we experienced as a whole, all of us together in 2020. And eventually, 
eventually, many, many years from now, we will hopefully have made changes so we can look back and be like, those are the moments that spurred all of these green lights that we have now. Human rights, hopefully, better science, better disease control, and stuff like that. So he did round it out nicely and try to make it so this could all be applicable to everyone. I really liked on page 289 when he said, we don't live longer when we try not to die. We live longer when we're too busy living. I also liked on 289, inevitability, we are going to die. Our eulogy, our story will be told by others and forever introduce us when we're gone. Mm -hmm. I love the PS. He added this note that he wrote on 9192, his 10 goals in life, and he Seems like he's smashing all his goals. Become a father, find and keep the woman for me, keep my relationship with God, chase my best self, become an egotistical utilitarian, take more risks, stay close to mom and family, win an Oscar for best actor, check, look back and enjoy the view, check, just keep living. I added the checks. I think he could probably (laughs) check all those off, actually. He probably can. I liked this book. Like you said, I was like reading through it and feeling like this guy's like really lucky and a lot of his like life situations are probably not going to be applicable to my life situations, but I liked reading it. It was a good story. He had lots of good stories actually. And I, I like the way he tells them. So yes. I don't feel changed. I don't feel like the way that I think has changed, but I feel like I know a little more about Matthew McConaughey and I'm not mad about it. No, and I feel like if I ever saw him in a bar, I would want to be like, let's have a beer. Tell me about your life. Tell me more. (laughs) But, like, don't be weird about it because he might have to shut it down because he doesn't want to be an entertainer. (laughs) Yep, true. That, too. (laughs) We'll definitely have to try something from a woman soon. We need a woman's memoir in our repertoire. We've got some on the list, so hopefully we'll get to it. We will. With that said, we will be back in May. I will be giving birth next Wednesday. Creating life, nothing enormous or crazy or anything like that, you know, (laughs) super cash. Yeah, super cash. (laughs) Getting my body ripped open, but you know what? Oh my gosh. All in the name of creating life. Yes. This is going to be exciting. Is Sebastian excited? Does he know what a little brother is? Yeah, he is so excited. He kisses my belly, hugs my belly, tells me how excited he is for his brother. Cute. So cute. Yeah. It is. Well, okay. With that, I guess uh, we'll make an announcement a couple weeks before May to announce what book we want to read or what book we're going to read. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. This is kind of sad. I'm a little sad. What am I going to do every two weeks for the next three months? I don't know. Man, I don't know. I guess I'll have to figure it out. I know. (laughs) I'm trying to think of what I'm going to do. Oh, wait, I'll have a baby. Right. (laughs) Free time. Never heard of her. (laughs) Never. All righty, Kayla. Good luck. I'm going to be texting you every day up until then and after. So. Okay. You better. I'll have time to say good luck again before it happens. Perfect. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.